Do you remember those days in school when the teacher would have the exams that you've taken and the teacher's going to pass out the exams? And so the teacher walks down among the class and starts calling out people to give them uh, their exam. For example, Marcia, you were a teacher. So you stand up for just a second, if you would. So imagine I'm, I'm the teacher, Marcia, you've taken your exam, and I'm going to give you your grade in front of the whole class. So turn around and look at everybody. And I would say, now Marcia doesn't know I'm going to do this. So, so I would say, Marcia, this is your math grade. I'm the teacher. And uh, I would say that you get along well with other students. That's a good thing. And I want to commend you for taking good notes in math class. But I have this thing against you. You don't know how to add. <laughs> Now, how do you like hearing that? How do you like hearing that and then hearing it in front of the whole class? You still love me, Marcia? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> this is just an I illustration. Do. So imagine, imagine how you would feel if you were Marcia, and imagine how you'd feel if it were real that I was doing this as your teacher. It'd put you on the spot, wouldn't it? You'd feel a little, little, uh, little uh, but you did a great job. Let me applaud you for that. Mar, stand up for a second, if you would. Mar Stancil, and just uh, imagine I'm the teacher. I'm coming around here, and... And Mars, turn around and look at the class out here. And, and, uh, and Mars, you've been, you've been in uh, an English class. And I want to tell the, the, the rest of the students here about your grade. So, so in English class, I want to say that you have really good handwriting. I want to commend you for your handwriting. I also want to commend you that on the quizzes, you do really good. So that's a good thing I want to commend you. But, but I want to tell you I have this one thing against you. You can't stop talking. You've got to stop talking. And if you don't stop talking, there'll be some bad consequences. So how would you like it if you were the one in school and the teacher stood you up and said these things to you in front of the class? How does it feel, Morris? Not too good. Not too good. All right. <laughs> I hope to see you back next Sunday sitting yeah. right here. Okay. <laughs> Bo, stand up. Bo, stand up. Now, Bo, turn around and face the rest of the students here. We're gonna, you've been in science class, in science class, and, and I want to tell some good things about our student here, Bo. One thing is, Bo, you listen well. You listen really good in class. You sit there, and you focus and pay attention. And, and then also, <laughs> now, that's your, that's your PE teacher over there. You know, we're not going to listen to her. I, that's my old nature. <laughs> that's right. So, so in, in, uh, in science class, you listen well. And I want to commend you for that, and I want to commend you for being on time. But, Bo, I have this one thing against you. You keep blowing things up in science <laughs> class. So if you don't change, there's going to be some bad consequences. How does that feel to stand up in front of everybody and have that kind of thing read out? Well, I told him, I, for each of these, I've told him two good things for every one bad thing, but still it's kind of a little self-conscious, isn't it, Bo? It's embarrassing. Well, <laughs> I figured after spending six years in the seventh grade, you'd, you'd be all right with that. Okay, all right, have a seat, have a seat. All right. So, so we can all kind of identify with, with a teacher in a class doing something like that, and I can remember dreading those days. It's bad enough when the teacher walks around passing the papers out, and then we'll get to, she would get to me, for example, and just go, hmm, and hand that paper. But to stand a person up and then read out, here's some good things, and here's something that really you're not doing good in at all. And then to follow it up with saying, if you don't straighten up, you might repeat this grade, or you might not be able to continue in your study. So, so, so that's, you know, a little self-conscious, but that's exactly what Jesus does in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn there this morning. I've been setting this series of messages up for the last couple of weeks, and today we're diving into uh, the, the, the examination of seven churches. The first church to face the examination of Jesus is the church at Ephesus. And there at the church at Ephesus, uh, they were uh, being uh, uh, the church, and the Lord has come, and through John on the Isle of Patmos, through writing a letter, he exposes both the things that he commends them for and for what he uh, derides them for as well. Juan Sanchez, who wrote an article called Seven Dangers Facing Your Church, says this. Revelation 2 and 3 reports the dangers the seven churches faced and are the very same dangers that we still face today. He says, as we think about going through this, it's not only a matter of us looking back at the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. That has a good lesson to, to, to look back on, 
but to recognize the same issues that church faced is the same issue this church faces and the same issue that every church throughout the ages has faced, which is the value of us studying these series of churches. So he says the same dangers they faced are the same dangers we still face. And then he says this, it's both a warning that we need to be on our guard and much more importantly, listen to this part, an encouragement that we can trust fully in our all-powerful, all-conquering Savior. Isn't that some good encouragement to us? We're facing the same issues. So that makes it, the, the benefit of that is, as we read what happened in the Scripture, we know that that speaks to us just as clearly today as today's newspaper. It's still relevant to us. And it is a reminder to us not only to be on our guard, but to recognize that through our Savior, we can conquer. We can, as the choir just sang, finish well. And that's a great encouragement to us today. In the book Flickering Lamps by Henry Blackaby, which, uh, which some of us are reading through. Our, our deacons are reading through this. Some of our connect groups are reading through it. I have some books I can make available. Would love to do that. But Henry Blackaby says this in the book Flickering Lamps. He says, God stands ready to take full control of your church. Now, I want to stop right there. I, I, I prepared my notes, and as I was dwelling on it this morning, this, this thought hit me. God stands ready to take full control of your church. That's an encouragement. Somebody say amen to that? That's an encouragement. But listen, here's what, here's what struck me like a knife. How many churches really want God to take control? And if God took control of the average church, what difference would it make? And if God took control of the average church, which church members would get upset and walk out the door? Anyway, that struck me as I was looking through this. It says, he's not daunted by your current or future challenges. Isn't that good news? God's not daunted. He knows how to take your church and make it a mighty force for his kingdom. However, he won't accomplish his purpose by merely blessing your plans. That's a quote worth remembering. He will not accomplish his, his purposes simply by blessing our plans. He receives glory when his will is done. That's when God receives the glory. And that's the purpose of the church is to bring honor and glory to God. Today, we're going to look at how loving Jesus is the priority of the church. If we look at what are, what are all the priorities, all the things the church does, what is the priority? And the priority is that we love Jesus above all else. That is the purpose and goal of us as a church. We can talk about a lot of other things, and they're important, but the most important, the highest priority we have is to love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to read the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to notice here that the church at Ephesus, there's a book in the Bible called Ephesians, which is the same church at Ephesus. There's a, a John who wrote Revelation, was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul established the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus in the days of the New Testament was a great church, a well-known church, and a, good, a church with a great reputation. Listen to what Jesus says, starting in Revelation 2 and chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our Heavenly Father, help us to have as a goal to be with you in paradise, to be around the throne of God in heaven. And we thank you that you have seen fit to reach down and send our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Even when we weren't looking, when we weren't ready, when we were still sinners and far away, you sent Jesus to be our Savior. 
And Lord, help us to love Jesus. Help us to truly love Jesus. For some of us in this room, Lord, we've loved Jesus for years and for decades and for most of our lives. Help that to be renewed even today. For some of us, Lord, we, we know that we love you, but perhaps for some reason or another we've drifted away. We've gotten busier. We've gotten our priorities out of whack. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we're angry with you, Lord. For whatever reason it is, help us to renew that love relationship with you that we might find the joy, the peace, and the glory to our Heavenly Father and the promise of eternal life. And Lord, no doubt there's some in here today that they've never loved you. Maybe they've rejected you. Maybe they've just never heard. Maybe they've never considered. I pray that even today, that by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word and the presence that you have in this place, that you would speak to them and to us and draw us into that wonderful, loving relationship you intend that we all have as we call upon your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So let's take a few minutes this morning that we have and learn some lessons from this church at Ephesus. I'm, I'm the kind of person that, that if, I don't, if I don't know any better, uh, I'm going to burn my hand on the stove. You know that? Uh, if you don't know it's hot, you put your hand on it, you burn your hand, and then I will learn that lesson. I burn my hand, something inside says, all right, don't touch the hot stove. All right, got it. But on the other hand, I would much rather watch you touch the hot stove. And I can learn the same lesson without hurting myself, right? In the same way, we can learn some wonderful lessons from the churches of the Bible that we won't have to burn our own hands. We can watch how others have been burned and learn those same lessons and apply them to our lives. So, so let's look, first of all, lesson number one is we will, as a church, we will be commended for affirmative ministry. When, when the Lord, who is in our presence now and always, he's, he's walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the churches. He is in every church that meets on this day and every day. He's in our midst. And that ought to be wonderful good news and encouraging news. He is here. He is in our midst. And so as he is here in our midst and looking over who we are and what we do and then giving us feedback, we know that the Lord himself will commend us and give us good marks and good qualities and good feedback for the affirmative things we have done. There's a checklist here of six things for the church at Ephesus that they were doing, that they were doing well, and Jesus commended them. Let's go through that a little quick here. First of all, are there ministry activities? You see there we talked about their works. So ministry activities, the things that they were doing as a church, Jesus commended them for. So on the checklist, we can say check. We're, we're, we're commended, uh, the church is commended for its works. Now, the works of this church are not listed here. So we don't know exactly what they were, and I don't pretend to, to know, but, but let's, let's bring it up to our modern day, into Ridgecrest Baptist Church, and let's just say the Lord knows our works, what we do for the gospel, and He's commending us for them. So perhaps uh, He would say uh, for our preschool ministry, or our children's ministry, or our youth ministry, Maybe our adult ministry or our senior adult ministry, our youth program, our Awana uh, program, our mission trips, our camps, our, our senior adult uh, fellowships and trips, the, the conferences that we have, that we host, that we attend, the baptisms that we have, uh, even when you break an arm, uh, all the things that, that go into that. Uh, you know, there are good things that the church does, and Jesus says you're doing good in this area. Check. Secondly, is a work ethic. Not just what you're doing, but how well are you applying yourself in, in, in the effort? Notice here, he uses the word toil, verses 2 and 3 there. I know your toil. And that word toil means that they were giving themselves wholeheartedly and that they saw value in their efforts. There's a difference between just doing something and doing it with all your heart. There's a difference between, between just having a task to do and doing that task out of a passion and doing that task out of, a, uh, out of a desire and out of a drive to do it and to do it well. This church, uh, Jesus said, I know your toil. I know how hard-hearted you, hard you're working, how hard you're working. I know you're willing to give your time and your energy to ministry. You're willing to roll up your sleeves and to get involved in real people's lives. I know all these things that you're doing. Now, Recently, <clears throat> excuse me. Recently, Tom Rayner, the head of our Lifeway Christian Resources, has put out a study uh, on churches, 
And uh, as part of the study, he made note of what I've heard for years as the 80-20 rule for volunteer organizations. You may not have heard this. It's true for the Moose Club and the Lions Club, and it's true for the baseball team, and it's true for the PTO, and it's true for the church. Volunteer organizations usually operate off of what's called the 80-20 the rule, which means 80% of the people provide 20% of the work and 20% of the income. And conversely, 20% of the people provide 80% of the work and 80% of the income. That's true across, uh, across denominations, across churches. It's true in, in, in virtually every volunteer organization out there. So he says that's what the church has been experiencing for, for forever. <clears throat> but then he says this. He said, in these days, I've, I've observed what I'm going to call the 2080 rule. The 2080 rule. Here's what he says the 2080 rule is. He says, 20% of the work of the church is all that's getting done. And 80% of the members have checked out. Now think about that, William, for just a second. You may or may not agree. I'm not sure that I agree completely, but I think he makes a valid point here. He says, 20, only 20% of the work of the church is getting done. We're only operating at 20% of where God would have us to be. Now, you think about that. If that's true, you think about whatever impact we may be having now. Imagine what would happen if it was five times greater and it was at 100%. And then he says 80% of the church members have checked out. And he says that's represented in two different ways. One is church members literally are, are failing to be involved in their church by coming. And then even when there, he says, 80% of the folks are not doing anything other than occupying a pew. So that's, a, that's a, a broad general statement across the church in America in the year 2018 by the head of our Lifeway facility. So, so, so here, Jesus is commending this church for their, their ethic, for their toil, and he says, check, you're doing a great job. For, for the church today, now I'm not speaking specifically of Ridgecrest, but across the board, it seems to be that our grade, we may not get a check in that area these days. <clears throat> then notice also he commends them for their stamina. He says, your patient endurance. To endure something with patience is extremely hard. But this church in Ephesus, they were doing that. So check, they were, they, they, they were enduring. They were bearing up. They were not growing weary. They, they kept on ministering in spite of their circumstances, in spite of the spiritual opposition that they faced. And they were facing opposition. They held up when times were tough. They held up when others quit. They kept going when it was not popular. They kept going when other things were calling for their attention. They kept going when the weather was good and the weather was bad. They kept on going when others did not understand what it meant. And they they kept going when it cost them something of their resources, of their time, of their energy, and of their reputation. They stuck with it. They prioritized it. And here and other places, they are commended for the fact that they had a Christian spiritual stamina about them. Check. I would like that to be said about our church. Fourthly, there was the avoidance of evil. <clears throat> Don't you notice what he says here? You cannot bear with those who are evil. And so notice it's talking here about the in, inside of the person. Not what they do outwardly, but the inside. You, you cannot bear with those who are as a persona, as character, as their spiritual nature. You cannot bear with those who are evil. So, so, so when, when, when there were those who were in opposition to the gospel, they were in opposition to Christ, they were in opposition to the church, they, they had, had evil intent and evilness about them. These Christians in Ephesus, they determined they were not going to bear, they couldn't bear to be around these people because it rubbed them wrong. They couldn't bear to be in the presence of evil. And I want to tell you something, as a, as a Christian, God's plan and desire for us is that when we encounter evil, that it make us very uncomfortable. If we ever feel at home among evil, then we're in trouble in our spiritual lives. And so, so this, this church, when, when they were around the evil that was going on around them, and, and Ephesus had all kinds of evil, spiritual, political, moral, it was all around them. And so they could not bear up with those who were participating. They, they couldn't be around it. They couldn't socialize it. They, there was something different about those people and something different about me. I just can't be around it. It, it reminds me of the beginning of Psalm 1, in, in there in the Old Testament. Psalm 1, verse 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This is the person who, who listens and considers what they know is evil. A wise person, a blessed person, a godly person doesn't do that. 
Blessed is the man who, who does not stand in the way of sinners. So they see the direction sinners are going. Instead of going with the sinners, those who are openly in opposition to God, this person says, no, I'm not going to walk in that way. And then thirdly, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. To, to sit in a seat is to take a place of authority, and a scoffer is one who would shake their fist. So, so, so blessed is the man or the woman, the boy or the girl, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, of, of, of take, thinking somehow, some way you have authority to determine right and wrong and to shake your fist into the face of God. You're blessed if you don't do that. That's what the church at Ephesus was doing. They could not bear those who were evil. Fifthly, there was the examination of spiritual leaders. It says here you, you claim that you, you examine those who claim to be apostles but were found to be false. They, they said, oh, we're believers, we're, we're apostles, we're followers of Jesus, we're leaders in the church. But upon further examination, it was determined they were not really followers of Jesus Christ. They were wolves in sheep's clothing back in that day in the church, just like in our day in the church. That's what makes this passage of Scripture so relevant. There, there are those that today that call themselves Christians and call themselves ministers and call themselves called out. And we'll see them on television from time to time or hear them on the radio or there's a church down the road or a church across the street or, or something. But they're, they're not preaching the gospel. They're not, they're not holding to the truth of the Scripture. They're not trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. Any number of different, uh, 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 different doctrines that they may or may not hold. But, but upon examination, it's determined they're not followers of the Bible. And so to, to get to that point, you've got to do more than just take somebody at their word. You've got to examine. You've got to see how they hold up and how they bear. For example, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, the ordination service for Joe Yandel. Uh, basically, ordination works this way. The, the person exhibits a call to ministry and, uh, and seeks going forward. They attain some education. They present themselves to their church. The church says we would like to ordain them. And in Southern Baptist circles, then at that point, an ordination council is formed. So I formed an ordination council of nine full-time gospel ministers. We sat down with Joe Yandel, and for three hours, he's, not, he's teaching right now, but for three hours, Karen, uh, with great love, we grilled your son on doctrine, on salvation, on the church, on his call to ministry, on his moral integrity, on all the things that will be appropriate for anybody seeking to be involved in gospel ministry. And the ordination council determined unanimously this man exhibits a salvation and a call and an experience and an education and a character such that we, we bless this ordination. That's what's so important about this afternoon. I really hope you'll, come, you'll plan to come and be here. But, 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 but whether it's a, a pastor, a minister, a deacon, a teacher, uh, anybody that would step forward to lead other people, it's vitally important that we examine and make sure that people are following the truth that we find in the Scriptures. And in Ephesus, check, they were doing that. Then there was a sixth thing that that characterized this church, and, and that is they, they hated immorality. They hated immorality. Notice there in verse 6, it says, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Check. Now, you may or may not have heard of the Nicolaitans. We read about them here in Revelation, not only in, the, in this church, but also in the church at Pergamum, which we'll talk about here in a couple of weeks. But notice here, it, Jesus says about the church, You hate now, we don't think about hate as being a good quality. This word hate is a strong word, and, and in, the, in the Greek language, it means literally to have a feeling of aversion to what is evil. An aversion. It's just like, if evil is there, I'm going that way. If evil is there, I'm going to go that way. I'm averse to anything evil. So, so he's saying here, you have an aversion to evil over the works of this group known as the Nicolaitans. And notice here, it doesn't say that you hate the Nicolaitans. It says you hate their works. We have to always be mindful that, that we should hate the sin and love the sinner. Because Jesus hates the sin and loves the sinner. And when Jesus found me, I was a sinner. I was rebellious. I was not interested in the things of God. And if somebody had not loved me in Jesus' name, hating what I was doing 
I would not be a believer and a follower of Christ today. So we must hate the sin while we love the sinner. So it wasn't them personally because we're called to love our enemies and to love them all the way to Jesus, but at the same time to not tolerate and not to participate in the evil or the sin that they perpetuate. Now, if you read it in the, in the Bible, it's, refer, it's referred back to a group from the Old Testament and the prophet Balaam. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But, uh, but, but, but in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament here, it's, it's a, a group that led people astray for two reasons. They were led astray to practice idolatry, which means to exalt something above God, and to practice sexual immorality of various kinds. It was a group that called themselves Christians from within the church, but from within the church, they were leading other people astray. And so that was the danger. Jesus said, I hate them, I hate what they do, and he said, you hate what they do as well. So that group from the Old Testament, that sentiment was also true in the New Testament, and that same sentiment towards idolatry and sexual immorality is still present in the church today. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it is in the church today. Now, I'm going to make some people mad. I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw it out there because it's a, I think, I think it's, a, it's a relevant current example. There's a song out, a country song out. Y'all love country music, right? Amen. Amen. All right. There's a country song out right now, and the title of the song is Most People Are Good. And it's sung by a guy named Luke Bryan, one of the country superstars right now. And Luke Bryan himself professes to be a Christian and a follower of Christ. About this particular song, Most People Are Good, somebody has said, finally, Luke Bryan is singing a good song. Because his others don't really relate to Christian values. So here's a, finally he sings a good song. And I would say that perhaps this is his most dangerous song, spiritually. Uh, As I listen to the song and read the lyrics, there there, there are three issues that I think relate exactly to what the Nicolaitans were sharing uh, back in the days of, of the book of Revelation. Three lyrics. The first lyric sounds really positive, and here's the lyric. I believe most people are good. I believe most people are good. Now, that sounds really good, and it sounds really positive. But guess what? Good people don't need to be saved. If most people are good, and they know that I'm, there, I'm, I'm among most people who are good, I'm not perfect, but I see the people that are bad, and if I'm either good or bad based on what I see, I'm in the good camps. I'm okay like I am. Good people don't recognize that they need to be saved. When the Bible says, none of us are righteous, no, not one, and that we're all sinners under the condemnation of God. So to, to have a lyric in a song out there saying most people are good can be very misleading and very dangerous. Secondly, he says, I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. Now, that's, that's a blanket statement. And, uh, and so in here, he's talking about uh, love as an emotion, love as a relationship, and love as an intimate activity. You love who you love, that's your business, and you should never be ashamed of who you love. Now let me ask you just a couple of questions, and you, you don't have to answer out loud by any means. How would you apply this if, you're, if you are a, a, a lady, if you're a wife, what if another lady decided that she loved your husband and she wasn't ashamed of it? Would that be a problem? Yeah. <laughs> what if an adult in their 50s, decided they really had fallen head over heels in love, a man in his 50s with a girl who's 12. Would that be a problem? You love who you love, though. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You just love who you love. What about this? this, You see it on, I've seen on TV, there's a a TV show about it, and I've I've seen some other things about it and read some articles about it, this whole thing of, 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 uh, of multiple plural relationships at the same time. Or you might have, you know, one man with four wives. Or you might have a communal marriage where there's, you know, three men and three women and they just kind of, they're all married to each other. And is, is that, you love who you love. Is that, is that okay? Nothing to, be, nothing to be ashamed of. So you understand what I'm saying. When, when, when we start making these blanket statements, it's, it sounds so positive, but it's so dangerous as it relates to the Scripture. Then thirdly, he says this, I believe them streets of gold are worth the work. So he's talking about now going to heaven. 
And it sounds so positive because you know what he's saying? He said, I believe it's worth the work. It's worth all the effort it takes. It's worth going to church. It's worth dressing up. It's worth carrying my Bible. It's worth being nice to people. All the things that I do for my religion and religious purposes, it's worth it because I'm going to walk the streets of gold. The only problem with that is that doesn't get us to heaven. Except for that one little part where it doesn't work, the rest of it sounds really, really good. And the danger of the song is, is that it perpetuates this feel-good immoralism and this feel-good religiosity to the point that it is nothing. What, it, is, it is nowhere near what the Bible says. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Again, part of a letter written to the church at Ephesus. By grace you have been saved, and you're going to heaven through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. What did he say? It's worth the work to get there. No, it's not the result of works. So that no one may boast. If I can earn my way to heaven, if I can, 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 can do so many good things that Jesus looks at me and says, well, come on in, Mark. You've earned it if anybody has. Then I've got a reason to boast. I made it, right? I checked off all those boxes. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's not works. We cannot boast. And so here's a country song that's reaching millions and millions of people, most of whom may not have a close walk with Jesus, I'm going to guess. And he's saying these three things that is exactly the sentiment of the Nicolaitans that we read about in the book of Revelation. And these can lead our affections away from Jesus. So notice, first of all, we will be commended for affirmative ministry. The church there in Ephesus, they were doing all these things right. They were doing great. But, don't you hate that word in this situation? Verse number four, we'll be corrected for wayward affections. When our affections towards the Lord go astray, He will correct us. Notice in verse four, but, all these things are good, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. When you first came into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, there was that love relationship. There was that, that, that passion. There was that connection. There was that relationship. There was that commitment. There was that change of life. There was not from the outside in and that you were trying to earn it, but it was from the inside out. You did these things because you love the Lord so very, very much. Everything in this church at Ephesus looked so good on the outside, but inwardly there was some heart trouble going on. And it may not have been evident to every person looking. They may have been people inside the church saying, we're doing this check, we're doing that check, we're doing this check. All these good things are happening in our church. There may have been people on the outside saying, at that church, that's a large church. They're an active church. They're a friendly church. They're, they're, they're standing for and against these things. That's, a, that's a, a great church over there. Check, 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 check. And then Jesus says, but you got a heart condition. You've fallen out of love. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Everything outwardly looks right, but there's something inwardly that is wrong. In Matthew chapter 22, they asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, what's, of all the commandments, there were 603 Old Testament commandments, and somebody said, Jesus, of all these commandments, what's the greatest one? And you know the answer as much as I do. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The greatest commandment is love God. The core of our faith is love God. The purpose of our church is to love and to glorify God. All these things are the highest priority. And the church at Ephesus was doing all these things great and all these things well. But they had abandoned. That word abandon means to turn and walk away. To leave hanging. They had abandoned the first love that they had at the beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the danger is that they would be doing all these outward religious things and they would feel good about that. They would be uh, self-centered, that they could become uh, outward but cold inwardly. They could be going through the motions but fail to have the passion. They could be the right kind of church, but they would not have the love for Christ that would lead them to love each other, that would lead them to love and reach the lost world around them. So there was a... A, a terrible disease of the heart of the church, which is also the heart of the individual believers, that they had pulled away from God. On a website called The Insider, I found an article that says, the title of the article is, Signs You Are Falling Out of Love in Your Marriage. Signs You Are Falling Out of Love in Your Marriage. What's that got to do with our relationship with Jesus? Well, think about this. A few weeks ago, talking about the church, I pointed out how the church is called, in the book of Revelation, the church is called the bride of Christ. 
There's this great marriage supper of the Lamb that's talked about in the book of Revelation. There's a, the, the, our relationship with Christ in Ephesians chapter 5 is talked about in terms of marriage, where, where the Lord says, where, where Paul writes and he says, Husbands act this way, wives act that way. And, and all of this is a mystery. It, it's I'm speaking of Christ and his church about marriage. And so here's an article signs that you're falling out of love in your marriage. Notice these and apply them not only to a marriage, but apply them to our walk with Christ. Number one, failure to spend quality and quantity time together. Just don't have time. I just don't have time to spend with Jesus like I used to. I want to. I want to. You know I want to, right? It's, it's just so, so, Al gets so busy. There's so many things are going on. And, and Marsh, I just had to get up so early in the morning. I, I just don't have time. And, and you know, Marsha, I know you're mad at me about standing up a little while ago. But listen, it's just, I, I'm so busy during that. I just don't have time to spend with the Lord. In fact, I'm doing good things for the Lord. I just don't have time to spend with the Lord. Can you see how that would pull you away? A second thing is failure to communicate. Failure to talk. Any marriage is, is going to be weakened if there's not communication between a husband and a wife. And any relationship will be, especially our relationship with the Lord. And failure to communicate, it goes both ways. It's listening to what God has to say through His Word, through His Spirit, through His church, through prayer, listening to what He says, and then communicating back to Him and sharing with Him my, my heart, my passions, my joys, my sorrows, my trials, my struggles, my victories, my requests, my adoration of Him. I just, you know, I got so mad at God that I just stopped talking to Him for a while. That happens in marriage sometimes, doesn't it? I, I've heard about it happening in marriage sometimes. Uh, one, one, one gets so mad at the other, they just, they just don't talk. Uh, they just, you know, I've, I've had people come speak to me before, and they say, well, this is the first time we've actually spoken words to each other in, in about three weeks. I'm like, well, you live in the same house, right? Yeah. Well, what happened? And they tell me this thing happened, get mad at the other. You know, sometimes people get mad at God. Do you know that? And God's big enough, He can take it when we get mad at Him. When we get mad, we all do in some form or fashion. But when we get mad at God and we cut off communication with God, it damages our relationship with God. Another thing in, that, in the marriage uh, falling out of love is failure to resolve issues. You leave it lingering. You don't get over it. You get mad at God for this and you hold it against Him from now on. And there are people I've talked to that, that for years they've been out of church and, and out of a relationship with God. And, and it all goes back to either something negative happened to them in the church from some other person or something negative happened to them and God did not answer their prayer the way they wanted to because he died or because the job didn't come through or because the kid continued to be wayward. Any number of different things. But they're so mad at God they never resolve that issue. And the same thing can be true in marriage. If you have unresolved issues in your marriage, you, you know or you know somebody and, and it just perpetuates forward. Another is a wandering eye. Well, that's, we're getting dangerous now, right? A wandering eye can cause you to fall out of love in your marriage. Somebody that's younger, somebody that's, that, that's better looking, somebody that, 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 that you not have unresolved issues with may be attractive to you in that moment. That your eyes wander, your marriage then weakens. And the same can be true in our spiritual walk, isn't it? We, we, we love the Lord, we walk with the Lord, and we get away from Him a little bit, or, or some, other, some other philosophy, some other theory, some other religion, some other practice comes along, and it seduces us away. Our eyes begin to wander, and it weakens our relationship. Another is, you don't think about your spouse. If, you, if you're not with your spouse, and you're not thinking about your spouse, your marriage is going to suffer, and it's going to weaken. The same thing is true in our walk with God. If we don't talk, about, talk to Him, and if we don't think about Him, and over the course of the day, when we're driving down the road, when we're at our job, when we're uh, sitting in the stands at the ball game, when we're, when, when we're talking to our buddies, when we're out mowing the grass, when we're, whatever we're doing, are times that we have opportunities to think about, yes, our spouses, but yes, also our Lord. And are we doing that? And then another is priorities change. You know, when you're young and in love, I wish Joe and Katie were in here right now. I just, I love picking on them. You know, Joe's getting ordained today. Two weeks from yesterday, Joe and Katie are getting married. So I wish they were here. I could pick on them a little bit. But, but you know, when you're, when you're young and in love, do you know what happens? You exclude everything else around you, and you just sit there and make goo-goo eyes at your husband, <laughs> at your wife. And, you know, men, we, you don't care what, what game is on TV. 
You don't care if you're late for work. Ladies, you don't care if the dishes are piling up in the sink or if you're late for work or any other number of things. Why? Because you're so focused on each other. And that's a wonderful quality that I hope you carry with you throughout your marriage. But it's also a quality we should carry with us throughout our relationship with the Lord. Failure, or I mean, a priorities changing, getting away from each other. And then lastly, they say in the article, feeling trapped is a sign that you're falling out of love in your marriage. You feel trapped into that relationship. You, you'd like to be free from it. You'd like to be loose from it. You'd like not to be in that relationship, but, but you feel trapped. I've got to be here. And sometimes spiritually, we feel exactly the same way. These qualities of marriage, falling out of love in your marriage, are so, so true to our own relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can just feel trapped. And the, and the end result of all these things is the fact that we have just gotten away from our passion and that love relationship with the Lord to the extent that we're no longer walking close. We no longer have those warm uh, feelings. We're no longer committed out of that love relationship. We may find ourselves simply going through the motions and eventually that will become hollow and a hollow shell and it will be so easy just to step farther and farther away from the Lord, farther and farther away from our church, farther and farther away from Christian living, farther and farther away from serving Christ. All these things can happen because our love relationship begins to wane and it just perpetuates. So we have to be careful. So Jesus uh, corrects us for those wayward behaviors. He says, I have this against you. And then thirdly, I want you to notice he commands a correction. He doesn't just correct us and point it out. But he commands that we do something about it. He doesn't recommend it. He doesn't say we need counseling. <laughs> he says this is what you need to do. My experience in counseling married couples is that there's usually a role that each of them plays in the difficulty. Very rarely, although sometimes it's true, very rarely is it only one person is causing all of the problems. Usually there's something, ladies, if, wife, if you would do this, and husbands, would you, would you consider doing that? Would you work on this? Would you come back and talk to me later? We'll kind of negotiate and, and work our way through it. But here Jesus doesn't say that, that he bears any of the responsibility and that's for one simple reason. That when, when we don't love the Lord the way we should, when we've stepped away and abandoned Him, it's not because He's done anything wrong because He's not. He loves us with an eternal love. The cross that makes the difference is what He did then. But His presence and His Spirit now continue to be with us. And if anybody has moved away from the love relationship, it's not Him. He still loves us and pursues us. It is we who have moved. And in response, Jesus doesn't say, I want you to, to consider this or that. No, he commands three things to be done. I want you to notice here, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus loves us so much that even as believers, when we stray away from him, he tells us exactly what we have to do to come back. And he stands there waiting with open arms. If you're here today and you have recognized yourself as, as I've loved Jesus, I've, I've, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but for some reason, somehow, some way, I've just drifted away. I want to come back to Jesus. I want to tell you, he's standing with open arms. He says, here's what you do. Three steps that you have to take. One is, remember. I love that. Remember. Just think back. Just remember that, that time when, when, when you first became a believer. In fact, go back a little bit farther. Remember what it was like when you were not a follower of Christ. Remember what it was like to be lost. Remember what it was like when the presence of Christ was not with you, when you did not have the hope of the forgiveness of your sins, when you did not have the hope of eternal life with God in heaven. Remember what all that was like and just think about what it was like then. And then remember this. Remember that great, that great change that took place, that great conversion that took place when you went from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. You went from being on the outs with God to now being in the family of God. You went from having an eternal destiny in a place called hell as just punishment for your sins to now having an eternal destiny with God in heaven. Remember what that, what that was like when that conversion take, took place and remember also back to what it was like at the beginning. Do you remember those days when you could not get enough of reading the Bible? Was that ever true in your life? 
when, when, when you could just, you, 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 you opened it up and you read it and you got to the end of the sign reading or the end of the chapter, the end of the book, whatever it was, and you didn't want to put it down because it was so good and God was teaching you so much. And do you remember that when, when you would pray and you say, Lord, just, just fill me and thrill me with your spirit. Lord, help me to know what your word says and put it into practice. Lord, may your word make a difference in my life. And then you would actually go out and try to do what you read about in the Bible. It would be awkward, and it would be, you'd laugh sometimes. It would be frustrating at times. But over time, you'd get better and better at being obedient to what God's Word says, and you would get less and less uh, 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 desirous of your old way of life, and you became a different, completely new person because Jesus had worked in you from the inside out. Remember, remember what that was like. And then he says this, repent. To repent means simply this, to stop walking in the direction that you're walking and change and walk in a different direction. Just do a U-turn. You've gotten away from me. Think back to how it used to be and then just turn around and start walking in the right direction. And then he simply says this, return. 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 Just come back. Because there I stand with open arms. He doesn't say, yeah, you got to go back through and you got to take this class. You got to do this step. You got to, it cost you this much money. You got to go through this course. No, 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 no. Just remember and turn from your evil ways and come back and you'll find me right there. What a beautiful Savior we have. And we will find that when we do those things, our love relationship with Christ will be renewed. And that's true for a church. But it's got to be true of us individually because we are the church. Notice a final warning in verse number 5. If not, Jesus says, if you're not willing to remember and repent and return, He says, I'll come to you. I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What He's saying is you will cease to be a church if you don't come back to me. You might be doing all these things outwardly, but you will not be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have all the programs and all the buildings and all the money that you want, but you will not be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ if you are not loving me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I saw something put out by our Southern Baptist North American Mission Board last week in a magazine. I put a picture of it up on the screen. It says this, Every year, 1,000 Southern Baptist churches close their doors for good leaving communities and neighborhoods unreached with the gospel. If you think that the Lord is not closing the doors of churches where they have gotten away from their first love, you better think again. I don't believe that when the Lord is there in a church and they're loving Him and walking with Him, I don't believe those doors are closed. I believe they have to build more. I believe they have to expand. I believe they have to go to two services. I believe that they can't contain the people because when the love of Christ is exhibited between the, the members and the Lord and the members to their community and the, and, the, and, the, and the gospel is going out out of the great love relationship that we have, you can't hold back the church. But we see so many churches in our day folding and closing up. It's all about priority. And it's all about the priority of love. I want to close with this. 1 Corinthians 13. The great love chapter. There at the beginning it says this. The Apostle Paul writes, If I have not love, three things. If I have not love, number one, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. If I'm not loving, I'm, not, I'm just making noise. I'm just rattling around. If, if I, as, a, as, as your pastor, if I don't love Jesus with all my heart, I'm just standing up here making noise and wasting time. That's what he's saying. Secondly, if I have not love, he says, I am nothing. I'm nothing. All the good things that I might would do outwardly, it's nothing if I don't love Jesus with all my heart on the inside. And thirdly, he says, I gain nothing. There's nothing that will come to me if I don't have love. I can get this award. I can get that plaque. I can get this promotion. But without love, it's nothing. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus concludes his words to the church at Ephesus by saying this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't believe there's a more relevant message I could share with any church today. But I'm not the pastor of any church. I'm the pastor of this church. 
I don't believe there's a more relevant message I could share with the members of Ridgecrest Baptist Church, starting with me, than this challenge from the Lord. It says, all these good things you're doing are fine, but listen, make sure that you love me. Make sure that you're not walking away from me. Make sure that in your heart you're not turning away and being seduced by the things of the world. Make sure that your religion is not just some hollow outward activities. Make sure it's a passionate, burning heart for me like I have for you is what the Lord says to us. And I wonder this morning if you have a need right now, just where you are, to follow these three steps that Jesus points out. Remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. If you're going to make that a prayer, the prayer would go something like this. Lord, I remember. I remember how you moved and how you worked. I remember how awesome it was when I first became a believer and a follower of Christ. I remember what it was like to turn away from sin and to embrace you as my Savior. I remember the joy that I had. I remember. And now, Lord, I repent. I repent. Because, Lord, I've drifted away. Busyness, sin, struggle, heartache, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, the list goes on. But Lord, I have allowed these things to pull my heart away and I repent. And Lord, I return. I return to you who loved me then and who love me now. And I return with great anticipation. And I return to you. And I want you to restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because you love me. And Lord, I renew my love relationship with you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you simply stand? Would you stand now, please? And so our Heavenly Father, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters that we might each examine our hearts under the presence of your Spirit and respond appropriately and accordingly. And I pray for life change to take place today, right where we are. Today, Lord, publicly. Today, Lord, and in the days to come as we follow after Jesus. And help us always to be able to say, My Jesus, my Jesus, how I love you. As we sing this last song, I want to invite you to respond to the Lord. You can just simply make that your prayer. Lord, I remember, I repent, I return. And right there you do business with the Lord. If you're here today and you want to trust Christ as your Savior and come to saving knowledge of Christ, to make that conversion experience real in your life, I'll be available here at the front as we sing. But make this also as we sing. Make it your prayer. My Jesus, I love you. I love you. Amen.